0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, August the 3rd, 2021. This is episode 2927 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to be doing another topic roundtable discussion today. i got a bunch of stuff. Some stuff that we talked about yesterday, expanding on some brand new stuff. Uh, we are going to talk about COVID, Delta variant. We're going to talk about immunity today. Uh, so there's going to be some some of that because it's so omnipresent in our lives right now. But we're also going to talk about things totally divorced from that. We're going to talk about cleaning fish today, uh, growing hedgerows. Uh, one more time, how crypto taxes work. I'm getting a lot of questions from people that are worried about paying taxes that don't owe any taxes, that just don't seem to understand you don't owe any taxes. You didn't do anything to realize a gain, so you don't owe any taxes. So I'm going to go through that one more time today. Um, I'm going to tell you... That you, If you want to ever know what government health care will look like, kind of we talked about this yesterday, but just I don't know that I said it this bluntly. You can see exactly what government health care looks like right now, right now with COVID. You can see it. That's why there's so many problems with, you know, denial of treatment for COVID, even though you're getting treatment for COVID, but you're not getting the treatment you need for COVID because this is what government health care looks like. And then I have an, an email from a guy I'm going to read for you. Um, that says, you know what, Jack? When you say things like the the, the U.S. government, the FBI, etc., approaches people and uses them to instigate things and to cause shit to happen so that they can then go out and arrest other people, I can tell you for a fact that it's true because they tried to do it with me. So we got all of that and more today. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is J.M. Bullion. As um, is, is bullish as I've been since about 2014 on crypto, I've never stopped being bullish on precious metals either. Uh, precious metals are your wealth insurance program. That's uh, something that I've always recommended. And the reason I recommend JM Bullion, I mean, honestly, first of all, they are a sponsor. But that should matter to you because you listen to the show. The next thing is they have better pricing than Monix, AppMix, and Lear Capital, who are like the three biggest silver and gold houses in the country. So better pricing. Number two, or three, they give you a discount if you're an MSB member. Number four, all your orders ship free. Now, silver is silver and gold is gold. That's the entire point. That's why it's fungible. So there's no reason to pay more than you have to for the same stuff. There's no reason to deal with a company that sees you more as a checkbook than someone they actually want to support. And there's no reason to deal with a company where, you know, maybe someone you know can actually, you know, talk to the president or whatever if, if it's ever necessary. Because I can't. I have a direct line straight into Michael Whitmer, who is the president of JM Bullion. We've had very few bumpy things happen over the years. But the few times there have been, it's been a single email and it's been corrected. I, you know, Lear Capital actually asked to be a sponsor one time of this show. And I said, can I have the, the email address to the CEO or president? And they said, no. I said, well, I don't want to talk to you. I wasn't going to do it anyway, but I just wanted to see what they would say. Check out jmbullion.com. Is, it is the source you should be using for all your silver and gold purchases. Next up, what about the other precious metal? I'm talking, of course, about copper jacketed lead. That's right, bulkammo.com, long term sponsor of the show. The first thing that always dries up when the gun grabbers start grabbing is ammo. It happens faster than magazines. It happens faster than guns. There's an ammo shortage right now. Get what you can when you can get it, and get it at BulkAmmo.com. The prices are great. The shipping's lightning fast, and they do discounts for members of the MSB. With that, let's start digging on into this today. I want to start it out today with a quote for you from a guy named David Hume. And he once said of freedom, there is no such thing as freedom of choice unless there is freedom to refuse. And, I boy, that... That strikes a chord for right now with all this talk about vaccine mandates, mass mandates, and all this other shit. But I I don't think that it's really anything new. That as long as there's been government, there's been force in our lives trying to compel us to do things under the auspices of, but you're free. I I just got a, a comment from somebody today. And it was a really interesting comment. It said, how do I deal psychologically watching so many people in this country uh, basically degrade themselves? As you watch, basically, the sheep comply with all of the bullshit that's going on. And and, and our people fall like this. How do I I deal with this? And I said, your problem's your problem. Your problem's your problem. They're, They're not degrading. You're just seeing it. The majority of people are sheep. They always have been. The fact that we've had a global um, socioeconomic event that has revealed how bad the problem is is not why the problem is bad. Most people are actually terrified of freedom. That's why I did a show recently, or I think it was a Miyagi episode recently, where I said freedom isn't as popular as you think it is. Maybe it's time for a whole episode on that again. I think we are drastically misleading ourselves When we claim or even fantasize about the fact that we are the majority. The majority of people do not want freedom. Let me say it one more time. The majority of people do not want freedom. The majority of people want to be told what to do, how to do it. They want easy, simple answers for everything. And above all, they want to hear, it's not your fault. It's these people's fault over here. And you need us to make them do the thing they need to do. It makes everything simple. It makes everything easy and it gives them a 100% opportunity to pass the buck for every bad decision that they make. Why would you expect that people wouldn't think that way because you don't? I mean really think about it. Like that that is the and I struggled with this when I was a young man. I really did. Like I remember when I first heard about libertarianism. It was like beautiful music and I got messiah complex. I was like if people if people just knew If people just knew there was an option, there was people knew there's a third option. I was still in politics back then, right? If, If they knew, they just don't know. And the more people I talked to, the more I realized whether they knew or not didn't matter. They didn't want to know. That freedom. I mean, I'm sorry. I love Ron Paul, but when he says freedom is popular, no, it's not. No, it's not. Freedom is popular so long as consequences do not accompany it. That's the truth. People want freedom. But they don't want responsibility, which means they don't actually want freedom. They just think they do. So what people think is, freedom means being able to do the things that I want to do. This quote says, it's also being able to not do them if you don't want to do them. Freedom is, you can do this thing, and if something happens, it's on you. And you can not do this thing, and if something happens, it's on you. No one's going to fix it for you. People are terrified of that. They're horrified. We have a nation full of tiny children. Little, scared, meek-ass, mousy-bitch-like children. But these are people that are 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. And they're still mealy mouth, little, mousy bitches. Do you doubt me? Go look. Go look at the people wearing masks right now. Especially where it's not a mandate. Where they're choosing to do it. You know what you, what you really need to look at? Their eyes. Look at their eyes. They're effing terrified. They say this shit. Well, I'm worried about other people getting infected, and so I'm doing it because I care. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're scared. They're afraid. They're afraid to allow any risk into their lives. And yes, they've been bombarded, bombarded and bamboozled with FUD. With fear porn on their TV for a year and a half. But they're the ones that chose to accept it. They made the freedom of choice decision to accept this information. And some of us, we made the freedom of choice to refuse it. To say, you know, maybe there's some shit here. But we need to be pragmatic and practical and logical about it. There is no such thing as freedom of choice unless there is freedom to refuse. David Hume. Kind of going into this straight up. I want to talk about something that no one is giving you the truth about. That the truth is out there. That was the X Files music. I can't remember how it goes. Well, well, well That's not it, right? But like, uh, it, it really is. The truth is out there. But it's not. It's not like X Files, which is hard to find. There's plenty of studies that explain exactly what I'm going to explain to you right now, and I'll cl- include a link to one or two of them in the show notes today. But it's about how COVID natural immunity works. And if you have all if all you've heard about COVID immunity revolves around antibodies. There's only two conclusions I can come to as far as the source of the information you've received. They are either ignorant to how immunity works or they are liars that are purposefully not including the total picture of how immunity works. Everything I'm about to tell you. Anybody from, anybody from anybody who's done the, the, the most cursory level of research into how the human immune system works to the most med, advanced medical degree-holding individuals that you can find would never disagree with what I'm about to say unless they're either stupid or liars. And I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious here. When you hear, but COVID antibodies only last three months or eight months or nine or ten or whatever they say in some study where they looked and they basically said, here's a bunch of people that got covid Let's test their blood and see if they have antibodies in it. It is a third of the process, and it is the weakest of the process by itself, because it's what's known as slow reactive immunity. So how do do antibodies work the first time you're infected by something you've never been infected with before? You get an invasion of some sort, some sort of pathogen, some virus or what have you, comes into your system, and it starts to wreak havoc. It starts to cause problems. And your body says, oh shit, this, whatever this is, this is bad. So it, it, it looks at it and it creates antibodies. But the first time you get infected with something, there's a slow response to that because, well, never seen this before. Is it really bad? Your bo- if your body just goes around attacking everything all the time, that's autoimmune. That's really bad shit. So a good balanced system is going to take time to do this. There's also a second form of, of, of the immunity that's known as killer T-cells. Killer T-cells do not wait. They generally recognize bad guys as bad guys out of the gate, and they start killing on the spot. They're your frontline soldiers, and then we build up the reserve troops with antibodies, and the antibodies come in, so you've got basically your Delta Force is your killer T-cells. They just start slitting throats as soon as the shit starts. But There's only so many of them, so they can only do so much of it. The antibodies come in as the backup. Now, how do you get the antibodies? These are built by a third component of your immune system called B-cells. And B-cells are the ones that know how to make the antibodies. But remember what we just said. On your first infection, the B-cells don't know to make the antibodies. They have to learn that this is a problem. Then they have to learn to make this particular type of antibody and then they do. And then the antibodies come. Now the natural innate immunity known as T cell immunity is what prevented COVID from killing 65 gazillion bazillion people. That was, that was what they did not talk about. That's what they ignored. And that's to be fair. And some levels, what they didn't really know when this started and we were just getting data out of China, which was very, very opaque. Full of lies. So until we actually look at enough cases of this, we didn't know how much innate immunity there was. And it, it turns out there's a lot. The reason COVID hits people so hard sometimes, though, is COVID is basically a stealthy virus. And there are times when the COVID virus goes into a person's body that those T cells are there. They're active, but they don't recognize it. So they become more like the slow reactive B-cells making the antibodies and the slow reactive antibodies. And then what happens is a person gets a massive infection, and this is when it gets really bad. Finally, the T-cells go, holy shit, attack! And you have such a large infection rate at that point, such a high viral load, the body begins to attack itself. That's called cytokine storm. However... Once a person goes through this, and it's either mild, severe, moderate, doesn't matter, the body now knows this is what COVID, COVID SARS looks like. This is bad. And it issues, in order to the immune system, kill on site. Think of it like a burn notice being put out on an agent, right? If you see on site, kill. So now the T-cells never have a slow response again, as best we can tell. We don't know how long, but it seems to be incredibly long, possibly lifelong. Eventually, yes, the, the antibodies floating around in your blood will begin to kind of go away as your body fights other diseases and organisms and shit and makes new antibodies. You can't have everything all the time in your blood. There's a point where it kind of goes, yeah, you know, we don't really need this right now. Let's make some other shit with the resources we have. But the B-cells that make the antibodies in the first place now have a memory of what COVID looks like. So if they encounter it in the future, you have your T-cells attack and your B-cells are able to immediately make antibodies much faster. This is how many forms of life-conferred immunity to viruses work. You don't walk around for the rest of your life with chicken pox antibodies in your blood. But the body learns, oh, this is what chickenpox is. Now, how does, why is a natural infection, you should be able to figure it out now, if you use logical thought process like I talk all the time. Why is a natural infection going to confer a very long term, robust immunity, but a vaccine not going to do that in the case of COVID? So the COVID vaccine, specifically Moderna and Pfizer, introduce the spike protein into your body. And it teaches your body, spike protein bad. And then, it makes antibodies for that spike protein. T-cells? Not so much, maybe, yeah. Attack? I guess. B-cells? Oh, if you see the spike protein, make an antibody for it, but is it really a virus, because it's not. When the body gets a look at SARS 2 SARS call it whatever you want to, it gets a look at the entire makeup of the virus, not just the spike protein. It says, this thing is bad. All All these things associated with this thing are bad. So the body gets a very good look at the enemy. And the body is very capable of identifying the enemy and even if the enemy changes as long as he's let's say wearing the same uniform oh that's a bad guy he needs to die it is conceivable over time that the spike protein may mutate maybe it's doing it now I don't know but the only thing we've taught the body with the mRNA viruses is is spike protein bad that's it where when you have naturally conferred immunity, i.e. you've been through an infection, you've taught the body, this is a virus, it's a bad virus, this is what it looks like. T-cells kill on sight, B-cells remember how to make the antibodies if we ever see this again. And there's no reason for your body, if it's healthy anyway, to disregard that memory. And this is an argument I've had with Doc Bones a lot, because he keeps blather, and I I don't know why he keeps doing this, I really don't. Because he knows better. And I know he knows better. Because he's admitted he knows better. But he still blathers on about antibodies and how long antibodies last. It doesn't matter. If the body knows how to rapidly make the antibodies due to B cell memory, and the body knows to turn on the heat immediately with killer T cells, you're going to have robust and long-term immunity. And I'll tell you how you know this is true. There has not been a single credible case of reinfection. And all I've heard is hyperbole and bullshit about it. But I haven't seen a single credible case of reinfection. And you know if there was one, you'd hear nothing about it. Now when COVID first started, they had these people that went to the hospital and 30 days later they gave them a PCR test and they had tested negative and now they tested positive and oh my god, it's back. And it was all bullshit. It was all fragments of the virus. It was just any given day you took a sample, you may or may not get a fragment and you may be able to cycle it up to detectable levels It was all bullshit. There's never been a case of a single person yet that has had COVID, confirmed, diagnosed, symptomatic COVID, and then had COVID again later. Not one. I've heard people in my own audience, bullshit, I've had it twice. No, you didn't. Did you get tested? No, then no, you didn't. Then no, you didn't. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't. And if there was one person who did... They would be on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, all of it, CBS, every damn station, over and over and over. You better get vaccinated. I thought I was fine, and then I got that again. No, no, this is this is this entire thing has been a complete and total denial from the beginning of how the human immune system works. And I'm telling you, you've you've got other components to this. You've got your M1 microphages, right? That's another component that learns the virus. but doesn't really do it when you introduce the spike protein only. Additionally, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines pretty much wipe out your M2 microphages. They're another component of your immune system. They're a big part of the immune system that keeps you from having excessive inflammation, you know what they do? They're the cleanup crew. They clean everything up. What do I mean by that? So you have an immune reactive event, whether you get sick or you have a, a vaccine, and your immune system ramps up, and there's this battle. What happens when you have a battle? Freaking soldiers die, right? So you have a virus getting killed, you have cells getting killed, you have, you know, you have uh, debris that's created, right? You have a war. That's what an infection is. It's a war inside your system. Now once you have a war and you have all these dead bodies laying on the field, don't you think it's a good idea to clean that up? Like when we have a war, a real war in the real world, and people shoot each other and blow each other up, once the shooting stops, we go like bury the bodies. We clean it up. Because if you leave it fester, more people can die from the aftermath than from the battle. It's happened a lot in history. When you wipe out the M2 macrophages, you're leaving the battlefield littered with the bodies of the dead. And for how long, I don't know. And I can't claim to know how long it does this. Because I've yet to see a credible study that explains how how bad it really is and how long it takes to come back. Almost like they're not interested in knowing. And I invite you, I have a link today in the, the video notes, uh, or the show notes, called 9 Plus Spike Protein is Very Dangerous, It's Cytotoxic. And it's by... Well, one of the people is the man that invented the mRNA technology that they're using. One is a molecular biologist and one is a doctor. So go listen to them. They're not really going to tell you about how the immunity works. They're going to tell you about the dangers from the vaccine. And I still am not the person, who's not, I'm not out telling people not to get a vaccine. I'm telling you this is what informed consent should look like. If, especially if you've had a confirmed case of covid and no one's told you what I just did about how the immunity works, there's no way you can possibly make an informed consent choice because you're not informed. When people talk about antibodies, I'm just going to be as clear as I can, they're talking about one-third of immunity and the weakest third at that. The ability of the body to produce an antibody rapidly is more important than the existence of the antibody in the first place. It really is. And the ability of your innate killer cells to recognize an enemy as an enemy is more important than antibodies. And again, if people didn't have natural innate immunity to this, we would have some of the horrific numbers we were told we were going to have. All right. Moving on. Um, I mentioned yesterday that I got someone out here for Dorothy because she was dehydrated. And I'll save my comments on how that relates to government health care for the end of today's show. Um, but Jamie sent me this, and I, I loved reading this. It says, hey, Jack, I'm a longtime listener. I started back in 2011 i have listened to you pretty much every show. I even have episode 2271 bookmarked on the home screen of my phone because I listen to it that often. I listen to your roundtable show where you discuss Dorothy's bout with COVID and that you used an IV service. My husband and I actually use much of your business advice over the past decade to create and build our IV clinic and mobile service in Phoenix. Prana for therapy into a $3 million a year revenue-generating machine. F&A, dude, good for you. Um, I'm so glad you got hooked, uh, pun intended. There are many great things about this business. This is a microcosm of the actual free market healthcare. Thanks for all your business advice over the years. I grew up on a farm in the Midwest, so we have some similar background with grandparents who went through the Depression and growing up in a a place that felt like it still had old-school values. And it's always so refreshing to turn on your show and hear from someone like us. We've treated well over 2,000 COVID patients so far. I think we had 11 or 12 just today. We do fluids plus all the vitamins you talk about plus lysine and throw in a D3 shot and do nasal oxygen as well. I'd say 80 to 90% of the people do exactly what Dorothy did, sleep like a brick and finally feel like they've turned a corner. It's been so cool to see. I just wish I could actually talk about it on social media without getting dinged by the FTC. All right, anyway, let's move on from... Uh, From this for a bit. And I just want to tell you what I think is coming next as far as the COVID third wave, i.e. Delta. And I'm not going to go. This is going to be a very short segment. And it's going to be one of those things where I put it right on the line. And I already did it on social media. It's already in text. I I have made a call specifically to Texas, and I'm going to tell you the U.S. will mirror it, but it may, be, it may be ahead or behind Texas with it. But there is zero reason for anybody to panic about anything right now. The only reason we have been fearful of this at all is this idea that the numbers are just going to blow through the roof and never stop and keep going up and up and up and everybody's going to die. The, the concept that some people would get sick, some people would end up in the hospital, etc., that's life. That's life. So now, Delta's deadly, man. It's coming, right? Like, the, the whole the whole auspice of this is if we don't put people in masks again, if we don't lock down again, you know, all these horrible things are going to happen. Here is here is what's going to happen with Delta. And I, I am literally putting out exactly the numbers. I mean, 100% the the dates that this is going to happen. This verbatim what I posted on MeWe, Gab, and Float this morning. Watch me do a magic trick. Texas will hit the peak of its third wave between 8.15, which is you know a few weeks away, uh, August 15th, on the inside, to 8.25 on the outside, and will then go into decline as rapid as the rise. When it happens, ask why anyone should even worry about this, and why I can tell you this, but the supposed experts can't. I'm being very clear what I'm saying. You're going to see a peak... Of the Delta wave in Texas, exactly on or in between August the 15th and August the 25th to the day. It will be no earlier than 815 and it will be no later than 825. If it, if I'm off by a day or two, I'll still call it a win, but I am willing to go on record and tell you it is going to peak exactly there and its decline will look as abrupt as its, its rise. And the reason I know that is I'm not an idiot. I can recognize a pattern, and we've already seen it happen. If you look at the United Kingdom, which has a slightly higher vaccination rate than the United States, that had a much heavier lockdown system and and hence had less natural innate immunity, which we have already discussed today, so now you understand it, which is why we did. That's what happened there. It was about a 50-day cycle. That's what happened. And if you look anywhere Delta came, it did about the same thing. The exception, and it's not that much of one, is India. In India, we got a lot of hype about ivermectin. Okay, Don't believe it. There were some areas of India where they did use ivermectin heavily. India has 1.4 billion people. Most of them never took a tablet of ivermectin in the middle of this. They also have a caste system, and that means there are people in India that simply will not get the care that other people will. I know that's the case here in the United States to a degree because it's, you know, it's contingent upon the hospital you go to or whatever, but I mean literally it's enforced. You're literally a lower class of citizen in India if you are lower on the caste system. So you have a billion, f- 1.4 billion people. You have a lot of them living in complete and total squalor extremely close contact situations. I I don't think people understand how bad those conditions are. And they went more like 65, 75 days for their cycle to peak and, and valley. And it did exactly the same thing. Super sharp upward, super sharp downward. Why? Because Delta is more contagious and less deadly. So more people get it, more people develop immunity, and then you get the natural immunity impact and you already have in the situations of countries like the United States and other nations like Israel, Israel did the same thing with Delta. Israel, did, Israel has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Their curve looked the same as the United Kingdom. Right now we're getting breakthrough cases in some outbreak areas as high as 75% of the infections are people who have been vaccinated. I'm going to say something that will make some of you mad at me right now. I do believe that for a large number of people who are fortunate enough not to have bad reactions to the vaccine, that it does reduce the impact of the disease when they get it. Their body is better able to fight it off, and it does keep people from dying. But it's also the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. You don't know what the long-term impact is. So that's why I've always said, if you're a person that's really, really at risk of COVID, and you decide to get vaccinated, I understand. If you're over a certain age or whatever, I don't know that I would, but I can't make that decision because I'm not you. I'm a 49-year-old healthy guy. I also have, you know, enough knowledge to know what to do like I did when we got it. I already knew what we were going to do. Like, it's much easier to say, like, hey, you know, what are you going to do? I'm going to take hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Well, how are you going to get it? Well, I already have it. That makes decision-making a lot easier. But I do think it helps. I also think it harms. And I don't think we know the long-term impact of it. And I remain, this is totally skeptical or totally uh, totally speculative. But more and more of my speculation gets reinforced by more and more research here. This is going to have an incredibly detrimental effect on already declining fertility rates. And it's that is sad because the group of people that it affects doing that are at incredibly low risk of COVID. If you think about who is going to be most impacted in the next couple decades if their fertility is is dinked, it's people that are right now, let's say, 10 years old to 25 years old. When we get to a certain age, we stop making babies. I know you have a friend who had a baby when she was 48 or some shit. Whatever. The average age of childbearing years is heavily into mid-twenties, early thirties. Specifically for women. And I think women are the ones that are going to have the bigger hit to fertility from this. To the point where I I wonder if it's the plan. Think about the fact that the people with the worst reactions to this tend to be younger. All the myocarditis is in young males. I mean, guys... It's up to you to do what you want with this, but I, I, I promise you nothing I've given you today is remotely non-factual. And I hope the fact that I am open to maybe some people this makes sense for, even though it's very hard for me to say, shows that I am open-minded to this. But I really encourage you to listen to the video from the Dark Horse podcast. Because, again, you've got a molecular biologist, just. You've got a doctor who is not opposed to the concept of mRNA vaccines in general. And you've got the guy that invented the frickin' mRNA technology. These are not lunatics. These are not crazy conspiracy theorists. This is the guy that invented the technology that they're using to make the vaccine, who said, I have talked to the FDA... I've explained these concerns, and they don't care, and they know, and they have known. You you really have to start taking control of this, guys, because you can't just listen to this stuff. And, um, man, I'll tell you, I think the good news is this. There's a shitload of people that got the vaccine that are going to have breakthrough infections, I think they will have the same level of conferred immunity from the natural infection after it occurs. I, I do think we are kind of on the the we're kind of on the the, the short strokes here with this. I, I really do, and I think it's also why they're pushing so hard for this freaking vaccine. That if you think about if if this goes the way they say it's going to go, because what's her name that dark haired short haired doctor from the CDC came out recently? She said if you haven't had the vaccine. And you, and you haven't already had COVID and you just go on with your life, you will get the Delta variant. Not you might, you will. Okay. If she's half right, you hit herd immunity. Now think of how scary that is for somebody that's invested this much money and wants to keep making billions of dollars on booster shots for the rest of the, of all time. When this thing ebbs out and it's about to, what then? How do you keep it going? It's going to be very, very difficult, and that's why the big push now, because it doesn't make any logical sense. Not that it ever did, but it makes the least sense that it's ever made the entire time this has been going on, because there's literally no, there's no way that anybody with a brain and an IQ over 85 could look at India, Israel, UK, and some other places Delta's gone through and not know exactly what's going to happen over the next month. No way. No way. None. There's no way you can possibly look at it and say, oh, it's just going to keep going up forever. It's going to kill every. There's no way you can say there's no way you can say it's going to overload the hospitals. There's no way you believe the hospitals are about to be overloaded when you're firing people for not getting vaccines. You're firing qualified registered nurses who have already had covid for refusing the vaccine. But you're afraid that the hospital is going to be overloaded. Uh, Bullshit. Sorry, no, no dice, no chance. Please listen to the video if you haven't heard it already uh, from the Dark Horse podcast. I will, uh, again, link is in the show notes. I've never had this next question before, and it's maybe it's because it's going to be very limited what I can tell you in an audio format. But Heather says, hi, Jack, I have a very basic question about fishing. I thought there may be others who are wondering the same thing. What do you do with a fish after you've caught it? I haven't been fishing since I was about 10 years old, and at that time my dad handled all the dirty work. I know we kept fish in the water while we fished, but I don't know what point the fish actually met its end or how. I only ever once saw him cleaning a fish, but by that point they're obviously no longer living. Since you are Mr. Fishing, I don't know about that, I thought maybe this most simple of survival skills would be something you could cover for those of us who really just have no idea what we're doing. Uh, I'm going to tell you the majority of people, when they clean a fish, they don't worry about killing it. When they clean it, it dies. I, I am not that guy. I don't like to handle my fish cleaning that way. My, my preferred method of a fish meeting its end is to throw it into ice. And they don't last long, and they pretty much just, that thermal drop in temperature puts them to sleep. It also causes, it's more true in sharks than it is in other fish, but it's true for all fish. It causes basically the body at the end of life attempting to conserve heat in the internal organs, and it prevents any dumping of any um, components of the guts into the body. Right? So that's my preferred method. Other methods, depending on the fish and the situation, can be with sharks if they're larger fish and I can't completely submerge them in ice and I can't clean them immediately. I will cut the gills, I will put them over a boat, and I will bleed them out. Um, other species, like, you know, common fish that you catch, if, you re- if they're alive and you want to clean them, you can take the knife, and basically you- it's pretty easy to figure out where the brain is, and one good stab to the brain and they're dead. In general, I just put fish on ice. And I like to do that because, number one, I think it's about the gentlest euthanasia that's possible for a fish. But there's a second reason. When you pull that fish out of the ice, and it's cold, very cold, because it's been in contact with ice and ice water, it's firm. And when you, whenever you process any form of flesh with a knife, the colder and firmer it is, the better and easier and nicer it will process for you. So this is why we like to hang meat let some enzymic activity break things down and all, but we also want that meat cold, right? So when I process a deer, since I can't really hang a deer here uh, long term because it's not cool enough, what I'll do is I'll hang that deer up in my, if if it's at home, if I have to do this at home, I'll hang that deer up in my shop building from the girders. I'll skin it, I'll quarter it, and I'll leave the quarters whole And I'll put the quarters into a refrigerator for a few days. And then I'll go take out the meat one quarter at a time when I process it. And I want to keep that meat extremely cold. Works the same way for fish. Now, when it comes to processing fish, there's primarily three ways to do this. There's gut and leave the fish whole. And that can either be head on or head off, depending on what you want to do. And that's pretty much slit the belly, pull out the guts. Pull out the guts and the, and, and the gills. And you can leave the head on, or you can cut the head off. I like generally to leave the head on, and the reason is when you're doing a whole fish, I find that if you leave the head on, you kind of eat the, 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 the meat off one side of the fish, and you kind of grab the head and lift, and it, it, it tends to work really well in pulling all of the bones out of the bottom side. If the fish is a very fine-scaled fish, like um, a trout, you can just leave the skin as it is, leave the little scales there, and the skin's delicious if you cook the fish proper. Uh, if it's a large-scale fish, like a bluegill or a bass or a white bass or a striper and you want to leave the skin on, you want to scale. and You can do that with a scaler or a rough knife or a spoon or whatever. It depends on the situation. And then there's filleting which I can't explain how to do that on the air, but that's basically you just cut the side of the meat off the, the, the fish. And there's tons of videos on how to do that. And then there's what's called staking. And so if you have a large enough fish, you can basically cut the head off, gut the fish, remove the fins if they're significant enough to be an impediment to what you're doing, and then figure out how thick do you want your steaks, and just cut through the backbone horizontally like chops. And I find like one of my favorite fish to do with this with are channel catfish or blue catfish. Once they cross over about six to eight pounds, from that size up, they make beautiful steaks. Below that, they're probably not worth doing that way. If it's a catfish or any other like eel or something with like a a slimy skin, you're gonna want to remove the skin. And so, if you're filleting, and you can do this with, with with scale fish too, you do your fillet. You go down to the tail. You take your knife, you flip the fillet over, leaving it attached to the tail. If you cut through, you can still deal with it, it's just easier this way. You take your fillet knife and you lay it against the skin, and then you just cut the meat off of the skin. And generally when you're filleting, you discard the meat that's over the ribs, unless it's a really large fish. Because that can just it just tends to be more work than it's than it's worth. So all of those are ways to do it. But my favorite way of taking fish from flipping around to being ready for processing is just throw them on ice. Throw them on ice. Now, you mentioned your dad kept them in water. That can be like a basket. It can be a a stringer or whatever. Any way they're kept in the water, they're caught in until it's time to go home. I like that. I do it a lot. Um, And I tend to do it because there are times when I'll go fishing. I'll catch a fish. It's big enough to keep. But it's one fish. And I don't know if I'm going to catch more fish. So I will tend to keep those fish in some way where they can be released until the quantity gets up to where I'm like, you know what, it's worth cleaning fish for this. I'll also tell you another thing that I do, and people freak out about it, and there's no reason to freak out about it at all. I sometimes go fishing, you know, in the afternoon, evening. I'm tired. I stink when I get home. All I want is a beer and a shower and another beer on the porch and pet the dog and then watch some TV with my wife. I really don't want to clean fish. So what I will do is I'll take something like a bucket or a cooler or whatever, and I'll take the fish in it. I'll throw the old ice away that they came home in. I'll re-ice them down just to make sure the ice lasts till morning. And if it's a smaller, cooler or bucket, I'll put that whole thing in the refrigerator out of my shop, and I'll leave them sit on ice overnight. And then I process them the next day at my leisure you know why? Because it doesn't hurt nothing. It doesn't hurt nothing at all. And, and I've had people like, I can't believe you leave them on ice overnight. Why can't you believe that? Commercial fishermen do it all the time. All the time. There's, there's literally no, nothing bad about doing it as long as we go straight to ice. Let me say something else about this. Unless it's very short-term duration. Putting fish into a live well or into a cooler and your only source of ice being like pop bottles or something like water bottles or whatever that are full of water and frozen is a no-go. You will not get the flesh cold enough to be reliable in keeping not just health but quality of the product up. You want fish cold as possible you want it as close to freezing without freezing as you can get so you want actual ice now if you you go fishing you have a cooler you have a full a couple bottles of ice water in there and when you you pull the fish out of the water at the end you throw them in or throw the water bottles on top of them get home and clean them fine leaving them overnight leaving them all day long that way no 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 unacceptable 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 my last little tip for fish and this will help with the quality a great deal if you're going to freeze your fish once you've processed it however you're going to do it put a little salt on the flesh put them into a refrigerator let them sit for several hours or so in a refrigerator that's actually cold blot them off with paper towel and then package them however you want to and freeze them you will find that the flesh will remain firm. So a lot of mythology is like, well, you know, if you catch catfish in the summer, they get mushy if you freeze them. If you get catfish at any time and you freeze them with lots of water in their flesh, then they are going to get mushy. Same with a lot of really delicious fish um, that people consider mushy because they don't handle them right. Whiting, any member of the drum family, so uh, redfish, sand trout, whiting, etc., all those fish... If they are not handled properly, when you cook them, their texture is off-putting. The thing that has done the most for me in that regard has been salt. Not a huge amount, a lot like you're trying to preserve it, just a, a nice coating like you're about to cook it. And let it do its thing and pull that water out before you freeze it. When you freeze fish and you have a lot of water in the flesh, you get a lot of ruptured cells because what happens if you take a, a, a glass bottle fill it all the way up with water, put a cap on it, and throw it in the freezer. Most of the time it shatters. So that's what you're doing to the cells. So any meat, I do this with everything. If I get my hands on it before it's been frozen, I salt it before I freeze it. And I don't mean heavily. I just mean enough to pull moisture out. And you know what happens? It cooks so much nicer. It's it's not just that it tastes better or the texture is better. It, when, when you go to get that sear on it, and again, this is true, pork, beef, fish, I don't care. You get that skillet searing hot. You get all the excess moisture off it again before you cook it. So use a paper towel, You just a very little bit of an oil if you need it, depending on what you're cooking in the pan. You get a nice hot temperature, and you drop that dry piece of meat. And when I say dry, I don't mean like dried out. I mean it's not it's not going to steam or boil Then you get that beautiful sear. So maybe that's more than you needed to know, but there you go. Uh, Chuck says, how do you grow a hedgerow in Zone 4-5? We had construction construction on our side of the property, and we're considering planting some faster-growing trees as a visual barrier. I was just watching a History Channel episode that involved hedgerows in France. How would you go about that instead? Well, Chuck... It depends. First of all, whenever everybody says, how do I grow blah, 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 in zone fill in the blank, you grow things that grow in your zone. So you need to research what types of trees that you don't find objectionable that grow in zone four and five. And there's tons of options. I'm going to use an option here that may not work for you, though, because it would be the best option if you wanted, like, an impenetrable hedgerow. So I don't know what you really want. But if you want something that really is like a living fence, not just a visual impairment, something that like your animals won't just go straight through it, but you can't, right? You want impenetrable, then you want to do something like this. And I guarantee you a plant that will work for you doing this would be willow. I'm going to describe doing it with Osage Orange, uh, which, which Benjamin Franklin called uh, a hog-tight uh, fence once it was uh, equipped. But the best way to do this is one way or another, get as many little seedlings, whips, as you can. So like, you know, one-year seedlings or first-year seedlings or whatever. And with Osage Orange, the beauty is you can basically go, Osage Oranges are the trees. They have thorns on them. They kind of have a waxy green-looking leaf. They have a great big green ball that grows on them, dozens and dozens of them. If you have cattle, be careful because they will eat these things to the point where they will impact their their, their internals and cause them to get sick and or die, just so you know. Um, you can do this with willows as well. You can make willows easy. Willow is one of the easiest trees in the world to root, so if you have some form of willow, hybrid willow would be great for this. Just make as many as you can, Okay. Then the place you want to do your hedgerow, I think it makes a lot of sense here, not to half ass this, but to get a line and a stake in the ground and line this thing out and then start putting your trees in fairly close together. A foot, two foot, something like that. Okay? Let them grow for a season. And when they're now they're gonna be like four or five, six foot tall, thin, flexible then you start laying them on the ground and you can even you know cut some pieces off them to make pegs or something like that or you can use weights or whatever you want but what you want to do is you want to take them toward the end of the season and bend them to the ground so when i say end of season i mean they're going to go they're going to lock, they're going to drop their leaves bend them to the ground peg them down or weight them down and do them like alternating so if the first one you know where you begin goes to the left, the next one goes to the right, the next one to the left, the next one to the right, so they're over layering each other. Okay? What's going to happen is when the next growth cycle starts, hundreds of shoots are going to grow up like new trees out of the trunks. And from there, you can get as creative as you want to with kind of weaving them together and causing them, if you weave them together to where they actually fuse together, where they touch... And you can take things like willow, uh, osage orange and some other things and you can, you can literally make an impenetrable fence. And you can do this with edibles as well. You can do this with hazelnuts. If, if hazelnuts do well where you are. You can do it with apples. There are some climates where it's really easy to make, um, shoots from apples. You can literally just cut, uh, soft cuttings from apples and just stick one in the ground because it's free, right? Stick so soft cuttings are your new growth on your tree this year. Where it's still green. It hasn't turned it hasn't turned brown yet. But when you if you take a piece of it and you bend it, it snaps. It doesn't just bend and fold. It kind of like you get like three quarters into it and it goes crack. That's your perfect soft cutting. So you cut a ton of those and put way more in than you need because you can always prune out some. And the same thing, you can interweave these. And it it is an ancient technique, and then you just keep it pruned to the height and dimensions you want. And something interesting happens when you're doing this. Effectively, what you're doing now is you're pollarding. So there's pollarding and coppicing. Coppicing is we cut something to the ground and we let it grow back. Pollarding is somewhere above the ground, we cut it and it regrows. Like like Nick Ferguson talks about using mulberry and willow for fodder trees. You you cut it at, you know, chest height and it's going to keep coming back from there and you can keep pruning it right off at that height. It kind of resets the biological clock and these plants that are already long-lived perennials become almost immortal is what it seems like. I can't remember the name. It's like mesostoic or something like that cells. And that's why, if you look at something that's been coppiced or pollarded for a long time, right where it's been cut, it gets this really fat, kind of almost like a, like a growth, or like, almost like a. I don't want to say this word because it's not what it is, uh, but it almost looks like a tumor or like a burl, right? And, it, and it, that is these, basically the plant's stem cells, and not stem as in a stem on a plant, but stem cells like your stem cells, like the cell that can become any part of the plant. That, that's a, so what you're doing is you're basically giving this plant the fountain of youth. So there are still hedgerows in Europe, surrounding fields that have been there for, you know, dozens and dozens of generations. So it's definitely worth doing. You just have to decide: do you want it to be a food hedge or just a hedge? And do you want it to be impenetrable? Because if you do what I said, it, you're not going to be able to change your mind, right? Uh, next up. I don't have the email in front of me here, but I did get one, and I'm not even going to send it to uh, John Bush on crypto taxes again. And here's basically the story the guy sent me. I started buying some Bitcoin back, you know, in 2015. I never kept any records on taxes at all. But I bought about $500 worth of Bitcoin over a couple of years. Now it's worth ten thousand dollars. How do I pay taxes on it? Do I turn? Do I do I admit this? Do I you know what do I do? Okay, so first of all, this person used Coinbase. Okay, so there is a report you can download in Coinbase that will show every purchase and, and trade you've ever made. So if you actually needed to pay taxes, that data is there. You don't have to disclose that data, and we'll get to how you pay taxes if you owe them in a second. But the way this person phrased it led me to believe they bought some cryptocurrency over time. They don't really remember what they paid for it as they bought it. They know they bought about $500 worth, and holy shit, now it's worth $10,000. Don't I owe money? If you haven't sold any, you owe absolutely no money. If you went out when Bitcoin was selling for a dollar, and you bought a 1,000 Bitcoins, I guess today that would be, what, worth like $40 million? Right? And you had forty million dollars in Bitcoin and you never sold any of it. You never spent any of it. You just held it. You owe no money. Coinbase could send a picture of you with your account balance petting a dog with a Bitcoin collar on it. You owe no money. I've said that before, people are like, oh no, they'll get you. No. No. <laughs> you this is this is an example of people that think they know things that do not. You do not pay tax on an asset for capital gains until the gain is realized. So, the next part of it is, how do you report that to the government? Okay, this is something that if you were not significantly invested in stocks, you know, 10 years ago and more, and never paid capital gains on stocks, you might think of this hyper-competent entity that's going to find out everything. You just declare a basis, Now, it makes sense to declare a basis that's right. It makes makes sense to declare a basis that makes sense. But you don't send the government any paperwork and say, hey, look, here's my proof of my basis. You say, I sold $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. I paid $500 for it. And it's filled out just like any other commodity that you buy and sell. And then you pay tax based on your capital gains rate. For that profit, for that individual transaction. So if you sold all $10,000 worth of your Bitcoin, and it, what you weren't on Coinbase, and you really have no idea, and your best guess is you paid about $500 for it, you would pay capital, long-term capital gains on, tax on $9,500. You would just report it. And you would declare a basis. And you'd probably never hear another word about it. Now, if it's fifty-five million dollars, you might hear you might be asked to provide some information and data that you've done it. If you pay tax on ninety-five hundred dollars on a ten thousand dollar sale of any asset, the United States federal government is going to go. Thank you. That's really how this works, and we need to stop being afraid of it. And this is actually the long-term strategy with cryptocurrency. This is the hodl strategy. This is never sell your Bitcoin. This is, in retirement, borrow against your Bitcoin, pay it back with your next loan, and never withdraw any Bitcoin. Just keep borrowing against it and die with you know 20% of what you started with leveraged up against your own debt, and then your heirs can cancel that out and take the 20% that's left, and you never pay a dime of taxes. That's one strategy. The other strategy is, because it's such a hard asset, because it can be held with smart contracts, You can also loan your Bitcoin out in retirement. And yes, you'll pay taxes on the gains from the loan, but not on the underlying asset. You see how that works? So you can loan out on a one-year guaranteed repaid loan at maybe 4% your Bitcoin, spend that money this year, and end the year with the same amount of Bitcoin you started with, and the only taxes you're going to pay is on the money that you earned from the interest on the loan. And there's a lot of other strategies you can implement as well. But this idea that somebody buys a cryptocurrency, it goes up in value and they owe taxes, has got to stop. Anybody telling you that doesn't know how it works. I'm sorry. So next, I just want to say, because I think I talked about this yesterday, but I started thinking about it and I'm not completely out of my mental fog yet. So I don't know if I actually put it this bluntly. Do you know what government health care looks like? It looks like COVID care. And it's why nothing makes sense, because government care doesn't make sense. It never will. So I mentioned yesterday that there was an EMT who, when I told Dorothy's story about needing hydration and using this service instead of going to the ER, said, I went to my own ER. I'm an EMT. I work out of here. The people there know me. And I said, I'm dehydrated. I'm an EMT. You know me. I know that I'm dehydrated, give me fluids. And they said no. And he ended up leaving. He went back, I'm worse, I'm dehydrated, give me fluids. And they said no, and he went back a third time and finally got fluids for dehydration. And any doctor looking at a patient who's dehydrated with an IQ over 85, which you should need to have to be a doctor, should be like, okay, this person's dehydrated, let's hydrate them. And you wonder why that would not happen. Because there is a list of things you can do for a COVID patient that you can bill for and the government will pay the bill. And if it's not on that list, you don't do it. That's what government healthcare looks like. You, think of idiocracy, right? And, 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 and Luke, what's his name? Luke, um, Luke Wilson's character, right? When he wakes up, he goes to the hospital. And he's like, my head hurts and I can't figure out where I'm at. And there's this like dumb ass girl looking at a cash register, like a cash register for like a a fast food restaurant. And there's like a little picture of a lady squirting out a baby. And there's a picture of somebody like holding their head. And then eventually she listens to him long enough to make the connection and pushes the button of him holding his head. Okay, now he's been admitted for a a pain in his head. Right. And now all treatment will relate to that. A doctor won't say, oh, there's these other things wrong with you. You need these supporting treatments. They're going to treat you for a headache. Yeah. okay. that's how this is working in real life. You have covid. Well, I'm also dehydrated. Yeah. But, you know, fluids is not a treatment for covid. So you can't have fluids. And, I mean, if you can't find a service like we used, and you do end up dehydrated, and you do go to the ER, you need to say, I do not want fluids for COVID. I want fluids for dehydration. Bill my insurance, give me a bill, whatever. I'm dehydrated, give me fluids now. And the second you're taking care of somebody at an ER, and it becomes apparent they're not going to do it, you need to walk out of there and go somewhere else. Because you're talking about a thing that can end up with a person dying. And this is why people die with free government health care. Because you remove from the doctor the ability to make a medically relevant decision. And nobody's challenged me on this yet, by the way. You know, I said this yesterday, a couple hundred thousand people heard it. No one said, hey, you're wrong, Jack. You come to my ER, we're going to give you flu. No. I got doctors out the ass. I got paramedics, EMTs out the ass. No one has done anything but confirm this since I pointed it out. You want government health care? This is what it looks like. I just wanted to be really clear on that. Last thing, this comes from John. John says, Virtual Nation Building, uh, episode 2907. Your observation about the FBI attempting to use former feds to infiltrate an organization is 100% true. In 2014, I left U.S. Secret Service after being forced to the Biden protection detail. I could not abide what I saw in that family. I then went into cybersecurity consulting full-time. In 2016, I was approached by the FBI and asked to infiltrate the Kaspergi organization by getting cozy with Eugene Kaspergi's female director in the U.S. I asked the Bureau to be read in on the operation. That means to actually know why you're doing what you're doing, by the way. Uh, They refused and suggested I do it out of patriotism with no guardrails or safeguards for myself, I promptly told them to fuck off. Too many federal agents fear liberty. What you said is absolutely within their modus operandi, uh, John, who has been an MSB member since 2011. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. This is a guy that was in the freaking Secret Service. Just, just put his comments about the, the Biden crime syndicate family to decide. Right. One or another. he's in the secret service. He leaves the secret service and says, hey, this isn't for me no more. Goes out and gets a job in private security. Is approached by the FBI and they say, hey, we need you to do this thing for us. And he says, See, you know, if I'm going to do this thing for you, I need some assurances. I need some guardrails. I need to be read in. I need to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, if you were a patriot, you would just do it. This is the actual scary part. It's not that it happens. It's how many people that works on. It's how many people that this works on. And they don't just use former feds. They use a lot of prior service soldiers who are still messed up in the effing head. If you think that they didn't have people instigate exactly what happened on purpose on January 6th, you are a moron. You're a moron. You're an absolute moron. You have to be a moron to believe that that happened all by itself. If you don't believe that Capitol Police officers opened the door and let people in and told them to come in, you're a moron. You know why? Because there's videos of it happening. You're an idiot. If you don't think the government behaves exactly the way that John explained right here, you're an idiot. And the fact that there's so many people that are that way is why they can get away with it. It's why they get away with it. And there's people that know they do it. They also think it's okay. They also think it's okay. You know, one of the most tragic things that ever happened to a person in this country was done to them mostly by the FBI. The media got the rap for it, but the FBI leaked the information and caused the misery. That gentleman's name was Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell was kind of a bumbly but dedicated private security person who worked the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympic Games. And Richard noticed something wrong, and Richard reported it, and that thing was a bomb. A huge bomb. A massive bomb. And Richard mobilized the actual law enforcement there, who started moving people as quickly as they could without panicking, and over 100 people were injured, and I believe two died. Had he not acted, somewhere in the neighborhood estimates of loss of life would have been somewhere between two and four hundred and a hell of a lot more injuries. And in return for his actions, Richard was named a suspect by the FBI. But but instead of having the balls to do so, knowing that their case was incredibly weak and being under massive political pressure to have a suspect so the games could go on without worrying about another bomb going off, they leaked the information into the press and through the Atlanta Constitution Journal, And then the press went nuts and apeshit with it and basically declared this guy guilty for about six months of his life and destroyed his life. And the media, all except the Atlanta Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which which is the only entity that reported on this, has yet to actually say we were wrong. They stood under a technicality and said, well, what we reported was... The FBI was doing these things, and the FBI said these things, and those things were true. So to save themselves from being sued, they did that. However, the FBI, and this is why I think that you, sh- if you're an FBI agent, you shouldn't be, because this is the entity you serve now. Okay? The FBI knows Richard Jewell did not do this. They don't think they know. There is a man... Uh Rudolph, something—it's Eric Rudolph, I think, is his name. His last name's Rudolph. He's in the supermax in Colorado. He is in there for that bombing and three other bombings, and he confessed as guilty to all of them. Period. The FBI has never, and, and Richard Jewell died about ten years after this. A very healthy man. He died of complications of diabetes. To this day, the FBI has never admitted that they were wrong. They have never cleared Richard Jewell. That's an American citizen who saved hundreds of people, who never did anything really wrong to anybody in his life, whose life was destroyed, who was vindicated, not 99%, 100% vindicated. And the FBI has yet to have the humility to clear his name. So when I hear stupid ass, some bitches like Sean Hannity on Fox News saying stupid shit like, oh, they're totally corrupt at the top of the FBI, but the rank and file, no, man, they're bullshit. That's who you are. So the FBI agents who listen to this show, there you go. That's what I think of your organization. And you know what? I don't want to think that. I don't want to think that. I don't want to feel that way about you. But I do. And you know what? There's nothing that you have done in history that I am aware of to change my opinion. And if you'd like my opinion and the opinions of the American people to change, then if there is any integrity, if there is any honesty in this rank-and-file argument, step the hell up or shut the F up. And don't be surprised when nobody trusts you, nobody wants to work with you, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to our federal organizations if this shit keeps up. Because all you have to do to know what's going to happen somewhere is look elsewhere when people behave the way that they're behaving. You can't keep doing this, and I'm talking about the whole damn show now. The United States of America cannot continue the way that it's continuing. You can't continue to tell people that the biggest threat to our country is white supremacy. You can't keep telling people that people that have babies are birthing people, not mothers. All this lunatic shit. You can't continue this. And you can't continue. You cannot continue to entrap and ensnare the American people to throw people in prison with solitary confinement and no freaking visitors like these people that are, that are guilty mostly of vandalism from the sticks. You can't continue this without a country ele- eventually crumbling. And you know a place where they did this until it crumbled? Some of you are old enough to remember. It was called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. And I have a very good friend of mine. I haven't spoken to him in years, but he's, I can still consider him a very good friend. His name's Valery Azanov. He was a personal trainer to me in martial arts for a long time, he was also a member of the KGB. And this is my message to you people in law enforcement that are letting your lives be destroyed, that are doing things that you know are against your oath. That's what the KGB did too. And even the rank and file that were basically decent guys, because I believe Val when he tells me, I never you know, did anybody wrong or anything like that. It wasn't the kind of thing that I did there. When it fell apart, do you know where he went? The United Kingdom. Last I heard from him, he was in the UAE, working as a personal trainer for the security for the royal family. Do you know why? Because after everything fell apart, there was two choices he had if he stayed in Russia. Join the mob or leave. Without the mob to protect him, he was at severe personal risk. If this whole thing falls apart, and you have been violating your oath, I'm telling you, you could very well come to the same situation. And the reason is, not because Jack Spierko says so, because history has shown this to occur over and over and over and over again. And when you say, but this is the United States, it can't happen here. Think of all the shit you've seen happen in the last five years that you would have thought never would have happened here. You have... The rise of the Chinese and Russian military and where we start questioning whether we could win a war if we had to fight one with either of them. And the President of the United States offers you as a solution that we now have maternity flight suits for birthing people that are in the Air Force. Really? Really? Don't tell me it can't happen here. It has happened here. It is happening here. This is a fundamental reality that you need to look at. If you're in law enforcement right now, there's only two options that you have. You either stay and you push back and you keep your effing oath even if it costs you your job or you quit or I won't even say what I think of you. Go look in the mirror and think it yourself. If you won't push back You don't deserve any of the respect that law enforcement wonders where it went. You either need to stand on principle and integrity and push back against this crazy shit and be the advocate you went into law enforcement for, and I don't care if it's federal, local, state, county, I don't give a shit, or you are not fit to wear a badge and you should go throw your badge away right now and go do something more fitting with your personality and your integrity, like, I don't know, bussing tables at Denny's. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up. I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always support us by doing your online shopping where, tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day that you'll find at tspaz.com is, I don't remember what it is. Oh, how can I forget? Chomps grass-fed black pepper venison sticks. Now, I found these when I went keto, and I wanted to go clean keto. So I didn't just want to eat... You know, high fat, moderate protein, extremely low carb. I wanted to eat grass-fed beef, pastured pork, etc. And, you know, when it comes to things like meat sticks, I love them. But they're generally made, like, with the lowest quality cuts and leftover of CAFO beef or or what have you. Chomps are 100% grass-fed. They are delicious. Now, if you're keto and clean keto like me, you're going to love them. If you just like a really great meat stick... You're going to love them. And if you're not so worried about the, the carbs and the keto, there's some other really great options in the chomp line that have a little bit of sugar in them. It's still not a lot. But check them out today. These are the best beef sticks I've ever eaten. They really are. My I have one problem with them. I, you buy them in a box of 10 and I eat them too fast. That, that's that's the only downside that I have in these things. They are one of the most fantastic beef sticks I've ever eaten, but remember, you can get those, any of the things I've ever reviewed or recommended, or any time you're going to shop online. If you just start at tspaz.com, before you shop and start your shopping there, you help us out no matter what you buy. You can also become an MSB member. If you're not an MSB member, consider that. I've had quite a few people start to join recently. I had like a wave of people join for the first time, and um, every person that did, like once they log in, they're like, holy crap, I had no idea how many discounts there were and there might be a discount or two in there that I need to clean up that there's a vendor that's not really supporting us anymore, um, but 90% are solid, and uh, we will continue to add more. In fact, I have one that I meant to get added, and then COVID hit, and then phew. So I got somebody uh, that I'm going to be adding uh, this week, and I'm going to be doing some cleanup in there, and I'm going to be adding some more people. Uh, I've got some really great prospects coming for more discounts. But, I mean, it's it's a pretty simple calculus, it's 50 bucks a year. If you save more than $50 a year, you should be a member. Even if you hate me, you should be a member. Why wouldn't you be? Like that just it doesn't make sense that you wouldn't be a member when it benefits you. All right. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Song of the day today, it's Jimmy Buffett week because I decided I wanted Jimmy Buffett music because I wanted to feel better about life and I love Jimmy Buffett's music. Today's song is another one of, you know, Jimmy's kind of slow, beautiful pieces of music. It's one that, unless you are a parrot head and know what that means, you've probably only have ever heard it on my show, and it's called Tin Cup Chalice, and I think it speaks for itself. So, with that, I'll say it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. hoje Yeah now the sun goes slide across the water sailboats sailboat, they go searching for the breeze Salt Air it ain't it can stick right to your skin and make you feel fine.